This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Dangers of Progressive Education. Three articles by Edwin Benson. Today, the Return to Order Moment turns its focus to progressive education. The first of the three articles that I will read concerns those who brought these theories to schools and made them popular. The second concerns one of the most popular texts used in advanced high school U.S. history classes. The third shows how these progressive ideas have infected the teaching of mathematics. All three articles are read in the year 2020 by the author. And now, the first article, When Social Activism Outweighs Good Grammar. For at least half a century, there has been a cadre of highly trained men and women that appear to be on a mission to destroy our common culture. They are being paid with public dollars. They have access to legions of young people whom they are training to do their bidding. They can say and do almost anything without losing their positions. They are called college professors. Not all professors are part of this plot, but their numbers are growing. The easiest way to distinguish the plotters from the others is to read the words that they use to describe themselves. The phrase, social justice, is a telltale sign. A leader of this social justice army is Dr. Asao B. Inoue, Ph.D. He is the director of the writing program at the University of Washington, Tacoma. The professor's biases are displayed in the titles of his three published books. In 2012, he wrote Race and Writing Assessment. That was followed in 2015 by Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, Teaching and Assessing Writing for a Socially Just Future. In 2017, the Conference on College Composition and Communication, the world's largest professional organization for researching and teaching composition, gave it their Outstanding Book Award. His most recent effort is Writing Assessment, Social Justice, and the Advancement of Opportunity. Slated to come out soon is his article in the periodical Pedagogy entitled Classroom Writing Assessment as an Anti-Racist Practice, Confronting White Supremacy in the Judgments of Language. The idea behind these works is that traditional ways of grading students' compositions, organization, development of ideas, clarity of expression, use of standard English, among others, is racist and oppressive. What Asao Inoue is calling racism is really far more complex. It is a hatred of Western civilization. All of the basic tools of the writer came from Europe. The process of writing was honed and refined over generations. Sentence and paragraph structure developed gradually, leading to concise formulation and vocabulary to convey notions of truth, goodness, and beauty. Rules of grammar and punctuation made writing understandable across time and distance. The development of the dictionary standardized spelling and pronunciation. Learning to write takes years. Elementary schools used to correct students who used the term ain't. It did not matter if that term was commonly used in the student's home. When a curse word slipped out in class, the culprit was punished. Composition teachers lowered grades when a paper said, I think, rather than the more formal, in the opinion of the author. The capstone of this process was the senior English literature class. The classic curriculum used to begin with Beowulf and the Canterbury Tales. It then went to Shakespeare and grappling with Elizabethan grammar, syntax, and vocabulary. Then there was the reading of a piece of restoration comedy, like Goldsmith's She Stoops to Conquer, followed by the romantic poetry of Keats, Shelley, et al. 
The 20th century began with a look at the works of the Fabian socialist George Bernard Shaw. The year ended with a couple more modern works of the teacher's choosing. This course accomplished two highly important ends. First, the student experienced the development of the English language. Secondly, the student's own writing style developed by examining that of masters of expression from many periods. At the same time, the personal tastes of each pupil would hopefully expand to more cultured horizons. Under the tenets of multiculturalism, all of that was swept away. It became elitist to assert that there was such a thing as great literature. English lit was replaced by classes that focused on modern writings that expressed a variety of viewpoints. I Rigoberta Menchu, the autobiography of an indigenous Guatemalan, was more relevant than Macbeth, the message of peace in Three Cups of Tea, describing the experiences of a teacher in Pakistan and Afghanistan, was more politically correct than the militaristic Charge of the Light Brigade. As the content changed, the school's expectations also were altered. Appeal to emotion replaced analysis of plot, character development, and point of view. Spontaneous oral expression became more authentic than the rigors of writing a well-planned composition. When expressing opinions, one no longer needed to base oneself on a given set of facts. Indeed, two students' facts could be contradictory, and both could still be right. Not surprisingly, these new graduates did not write clearly. Since they did not construct grammatically correct sentences in high school, they were hopelessly out of their depth in college. Advocates of multiculturalism faced the dilemma of explaining their failure. In the mind of the multiculturalist, the real culprit had to be racism. They posit that white supremacists use the common rules of English composition to prevent those of other races and ethnicities from attaining their educational goals. Therefore, professors need to be trained to adapt to underserved populations and use communication skills that flow more naturally from their backgrounds and life experiences. Professor Inoue teaches other professors how to recognize their own racist suppositions. His recent seminar at the American University was entitled, Grading Ain't Just Grading, Rethinking Writing Assessment Ecologies Toward Anti-Racist Ends. In the opening session, he promised to, quote, discuss the ways that white language supremacy is perpetuated in college classrooms despite the better intentions of faculty, particularly through the practices of grading writing, unquote. Even if they disagree, professors are eager to jump on the bandwagon. Nothing is more damaging to a career in a modern university than being charged with racism. This approach perpetuates the mistakes of modern elementary and secondary schools. By labeling these important lessons as signs of racism, the university guarantees that the graduate will have to learn these difficult lessons much later as they enter, or fail to enter, their professional careers. Thus, the beneficiaries remain in a state of permanent poverty. This will, in turn, result in yet more complaints of racism— and the tragic deconstruction of Western civilization. End of When Social Activism Outweighs Good Grammar We then turn to another important aspect of this prevailing attitude, the teaching of history. Within this field, none have been as effective as the late Professor Howard Zinn. 
This article is entitled, Beware the Socialist in the Schoolhouse, a Review of Debunking Howard Zinn. Quote, And many false prophets shall rise and shall seduce many. Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 11. A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn is one of the most popular history books of all time. Over two million copies of its various editions have been sold since it was first published in 1980. Amazon's page for the book contains over 800 customer reviews, and 78% of them give it five stars. Anyone who reads a few pages of Dr. Zinn's book can figure out why it is so popular. It combines readability, simplistic analysis, and a sort of let-me-tell-you-the-real story quality that appeals to those inclined to see the United States as racist, sexist, and so on. Someone well-versed in U.S. history could sift through its many errors and innuendos. Unfortunately, far too many of its readers do not have that background. The Zen Education Project website assists teachers by distributing free materials for using the book as a text. It contains dozens of glowing teacher comments. Examples include, quote, The Zen Education Project is my compass in a sea of corporate textbooks, packaged common core curriculum, and standardized teaching. My entire curriculum is based on lessons that can be found in the Zen Education Project, unquote. And, because of this book, I understood early in my college career the importance of the true, unfiltered words of the actual actors in a historical event, unquote. And a third reviewer says, The way in which Howard Zinn makes history compelling for students is undeniable and a resource that I have decided I and my students cannot be without, unquote. Notice that these teachers express no doubt that Howard Zinn is telling the truth. However, many high school history teachers today know very little history themselves. For instance, the state of Florida, where this reviewer began his teaching career, only requires six university-level credit hours of United States history to become a certified social studies teacher. Zinn materials appeal strongly to young and often overworked teachers. On the surface, Zinn's work is a history teacher's dream, Students enjoy reading it. If the original book proves too difficult, there's even a simplified and equally biased version called A Young People's History of the United States. In the unlikely event that administrators question the book's use, the teachers can refer them to Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. There they will find endorsements such as that of the book's treatment of Columbus, Quote, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States includes horrific, detailed eyewitness accounts of how the Spanish explorers treated the Native Americans. The Zinn Education Project also includes a bunch of primary sources related to Columbus, such as writings by Bartolomé de las Casas, unquote. Mary Graybar sees the book differently. Her book, Debunking Howard Zinn, reveals its many flaws. She finds some information is provably false, other parts are plagiarized, and much pertinent information is missing. Her most critical contention is that the history book is slanted toward a Marxist and anti-American point of view. Dr. Graybar is currently a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. Her work has been published in The Federalist, Town Hall, and Academic Questions. She is also one of the founders of the Dissident Professor Education Project, 
A recurring theme in the Marxist view of history is oppression, which Dr. Zinn constantly exploits. Consider his description of the status of female English settlers, quote, Societies based on private property and competition found it especially useful to establish the special status of intimacy and oppression, unquote. On the other hand, the Indians, a term he uses with reservations, appear to have been both socialist and feminist, quote, Earlier societies in America and elsewhere in which property was held in common seemed to treat women more as equals than did the white societies that later overran them, bringing civilization and private property, unquote. Dr. Graybar also points out errors in the people's history. Dr. Zinn's chapter on the Civil War, for example, states that, quote, Lincoln initiated hostilities, unquote. Dr. Graybar replies, oh, really? In fact, Confederate forces fired the first shot of the war, unquote. Regardless of which side the individual reader may hold responsible for the commencement of hostilities, Dr. Zinn's implication that Lincoln began the actual shooting is false. However, as Dr. Graybar points out, quote, Zinn will do anything to make America look bad. Giving the American people credit for abolishing slavery would undermine Zinn's picture of America as a uniquely racist country, unquote. Indeed, Dr. Zinn implies that the United States is not only racist, but invented racism. His account of the introduction of African slavery into Virginia in 1619 includes, quote, in any case, slavery developed into a regular institution. With it developed that special racist feeling, whether hatred or contempt or pity or patronization that accompanied the inferior position of blacks in America for the next 350 years. That combination of inferior status and derogatory thought we call racism, unquote. Of course, Dr. Graybar proves that neither racism nor African slavery was invented in America. She spelled out the fact that Africans routinely made slaves of other Africans, a trade that became international because of the effects of Muslim traders. Dr. Graybar has taken on a difficult task. The text of the Zinn book is nearly 700 pages. Debunking Howard Zinn's text is 259 pages. Given the quality of her research and scholarship, Dr. Graybar could have written a far longer book. A complete refutation of the errors, slanders, and leftist innuendos in a people's history of the United States would require Dr. Graybar to write her own history of the United States. Dr. Mary Graybar deserves praise for taking on this noble and necessary work. Her book is profitable for anyone who wonders why socialism is attractive to many people of the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez generation. It is especially recommended for parents who notice Howard Zinn's primer of Marxism in their children's backpacks. Fighting the tide of socialism begins in the schools. This book is badly needed ammunition. End of Beware the Socialist in the Schoolhouse, a review of Debunking Howard Zinn. The humanities have been most vulnerable to the ideas of these progressive professors, and they have been very effective. Having all but dominated the teaching of literature and the social sciences in high schools and colleges, the progressives have moved into other fields, as can be seen in the third article, 
education's new obsession, can math be racist? Once again, the educationists are racing to complete ever more absurd ways to teach children. The recent controversy over the proposed California Social Studies curriculum is one example. This proposal was so ridiculous that the word history was spelled H-X-R-S-T-O-R-Y, pronounced her story to be more inclusive. Fortunately, this proposal was rejected. However, similar minds in Seattle appear to be hard at work to repackage those errors to appear more palatable to the general public. The Seattle public schools have devised a curriculum that is even more absurd than the California effort. It's K-12 Math Ethnic Studies Framework established a new postmodernist benchmark which all intelligent and discerning people should oppose. Even its title generates skepticism. What possible connection do ethnic studies have to do with mathematics? Indeed, this framework is not about building math skills for all students. It's more about social justice. The framework is organized around four themes. One, origins, identity, and agency. Two, power and oppression. Three, history of resistance and liberation. Four, reflection and action. Analyzing any of those four themes could fill an entire article. This one will focus on the first theme, origins, identity, and agency. What do these ideas have to do with mathematics? The Seattle reply is a classic piece of edu-speak. It explains that, quote, Origins, identity, and agency as defined by ethnic studies is the ways in which we view ourselves as mathematicians and members of broader mathematical communities. Mathematical theory and application is rooted in the ancient histories of peoples and empires of color. All human endeavors include mathematical thinking, from humanities to the arts to the sciences, unquote. The learning targets and the essential questions within the curriculum reveal the agenda of the Seattle School Authorities. The first concept introduced is that the present mathematical system developed in places other than Europe and America. So far, so good. The standard set of numerals in use today is often called Hindu-Arabic, based on the fact that the numbers themselves developed in areas that now contain several Arab nations and northern India. Starting about 800 A.D., they gradually replaced the more cumbersome Roman numerals. That is factual. After learning this, though, students are supposed to, quote, create counter-narratives about the origins of mathematical knowledge, unquote. Generally, a counter-narrative is an alternate explanation. This process is typically postmodernist. It casts doubt on absolute truth and certainties. What possible gain can a student make by devising another explanation for the development of the conventional system of mathematics when the facts are already well established? The postmodernist approach is reflected in two of the essential questions found in the program. The first is, quote, How important is it to be right? What is right? Says who? Unquote. The second is even more obtuse. 
What is the difference between being right and being a learner? Unquote. While there is nothing wrong with questioning questionable ideas, facts must be accepted and applied, especially in the hard science of mathematics. Any other result is disastrous. A bridge engineer who used an alternate set of calculations could kill thousands of people. If an architect and a builder use two different sets of principles, the resulting building will collapse. Speeding motorists will have difficulty convincing a police officer that they apply a counter-narrative to the number 55 and should therefore be excused. Notice that there is a deliberate attempt to separate the fact of being right and being the learner. It is only by constructing this artificial dichotomy that the postmodernist can sow the doubt that facts exist and that learning them is worthwhile. What makes this program so dangerous is that it will be implemented at all levels, from kindergarten to grade 12. While the well-trained mind can easily disregard such nonsense, impressionable minds are less discerning of the madness especially when presented by teachers for 13 years straight. The postmodernists are only one set of forces working to promote this kind of curriculum. Another dangerous group is the educrats and educationists who are trying to patch up the sinking ship of America's schools. Their last significant effort, the much-despised Common Core, is rapidly sinking. Another goal, eliminating the achievement gap between races and sexes, also goes unaccomplished. For these officials, such curricula divert the public's attention from the size and expense of their errors. A recent story in U.S. News documents this failure. Quote, Over the past decade, there has been no progress in either mathematics or reading performance, and the lowest performing students are doing worse. Peggy Carr Associate Commissioner for the National Center for Education Statistics reported, Carr said, The score drops cannot be traced to any one specific subgroup, as almost all of them log declines. For example, black, Hispanic, Native Americans, and white students in 4th and 8th grade scored lower in reading in 2019 compared to 2017, unquote. Common Core accomplished little during its short life. However, it came at a massive price. The Washington Times quoted the Federalist Joy Pullman's estimate that, quote, Common Core has cost the nation nearly $80 billion, unquote. While private philanthropy financed many of the initial expenses, every school system in the nation wasted vast numbers of employee hours on this useless venture. They had to purchase books and manuals. Teachers had to write new lesson plans. Compliance officers were hired to ensure that the districts met the new standards. The educrats' fear of being forced to account for those vast sums might explain their resorting to identity politics. Issues of race and ethnicity figure highly in the current public discourse. In their world, the lack of success can be packaged as a product of systemic racism, unquote. Their new mythology extends the racist level even to mathematics. The exact mixture of mistaken ideology and outright deception is impossible to determine. 
Such ludicrous ideas must be exposed and resisted. Your children's ability to add may depend on it. End of The Dangers of Progressive Education Three Articles by Edwin Benson Thank you so much for listening. For additional articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service from which you acquired it. In that way, you can help Return to Order to be more effective. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.